Our Father, to you we come as our King, our Creator, our Master, our Savior, the one who has called us from darkness into light, the one whose spirit is our guide and, and who illumines our hearts as we study the Word of God. We ask that the Holy Spirit will be our instructor today and that we will go beyond the uh, surface reading of your word and understand the truths that can be applied to our hearts today and in our lives down the road. Father, we just would come before you today in uh, faith that as you have promised that where two or three are gathered in your name that you are present here and that Christ will uh, touch us according to his plan and will today that you will ex uh, remove extraneous thoughts and those things which would uh, hinder us from fellowshipping with you. And we ask, Lord, that uh, in the other classes of Sunday school this morning, the uh, juniors, senior high, college age, the children, other adult classes, that you will be very present in each class, empowering the Word of God to, to change lives. And we'll thank you for your goodness to us in Christ's name. Amen. If you will turn to uh, the 27th chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 27. Last week, uh, if you weren't here, we talked about the uh, two veils at the end of class last time. The, the veil it was the entrance to the tabernacle, and then the inner veil, the second veil, which was the veil which separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And the last thing that uh, we looked at was the fact that God had severed that inner veil at the time that Christ died on the cross, uh, indicating that no longer was there that barrier uh, between us and the mercy of God. We could go boldly ourselves before the throne of grace, and it wasn't up to a priesthood to stand between us and God. One of the cries of the Reformation that Martin Luther emphasized was the priesthood of the believer. That is that you and I are our own priests before God and we don't need a layer of human beings who are quote holier than we are to uh, stand between us and, uh, and God himself. Of course the scripture makes it quite clear as you study through the Old Testament that the priests of the Hebrew nation were not holier than thou, holier than the rest of the people. They were in as great a need of the sacrifices and of the uh, atoning work that was done as the people were. They had simply been chosen by God to be the ones who carried out the work that had to be done. But we ourselves personally now can walk before God, you know, spiritually speaking, and, and deal with him one-on-one -on -one without an intermediary, human intermediary. Christ has become our high priest. And that all comes out very clearly as we put the Old and the New Testaments together in our study here of the uh, tabernacle and of the court. In this passage this morning, we look at another piece of furniture, but it was not inside the tabernacle, but was in the courtyard of the tabernacle. So let me read the first eight verses of Exodus chapter 27. And you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide. And the altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. 
and you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. And you shall make its pails for removing its ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. And you shall make for it a grating of network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall put it beneath under the ledge of the altar, that the net may reach halfway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And its poles shall be inserted into the rings, so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with planks, as it was shown to you in the mountain, so they shall make it. A very essential part of the tabernacle worship were the sacrifices which had to be made. And these sacrifices were made on this bronze altar that we just read about in this passage. As you know, uh, those of you who were with us when we took our long study of the book of Genesis and so forth, that uh, altars were not new. Altars had been built before. Stone altars, earthen altars had been made by God's people before. The patriarchs had built them. Uh, these altars were, of course, temporary. They were used by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whoever it was, at a particular place at a particular time. And as time would pass, they would be uh, forgotten, they would be eroded, they would be uh, disassembled, whatever. But here is being made a permanent altar. It would be portable, but it was to be permanent. This was the altar that they would use for the sacrifices connected with the tabernacle worship from this moment on, throughout the history of the functioning of the tabernacle and ultimately of the temple. Now the concept of an altar of sacrifice uh, originated clear back in the antediluvian world. Such an altar, you remember, uh, was implied in the days of Abel. It, God talked with Cain and with Abel, and, and Abel uh, made a sacrifice of, of the flock. Now, an uh, altar is not described there, an altar is not even mentioned there, but of course we have to, an assume, to assume an altar at that particular point of, in, in time. But the first altar which is actually mentioned in Scripture is the altar that Noah built when he came off the ark and when he sacrificed the clean animals and the clean birds unto God. Now, there is no mention in the construction of Noah's altar of what we would call atonement or sin offering. But the word which is used there in the Hebrew for bird offering is the word that is also used in association with all of these other altars later on in history. So we assume that although Noah's primary purpose may have been simply to express homage to God, that there was underlying that at least a concept of an atonement in the sense of the sacrifice of these animals. As we look at this particular altar this morning, we're going to see how important the concept of atonement becomes in carrying out the sacrifices uh, on this bronze altar. We know that Abraham built altars. We know that Isaac built altars. We know that Jacob built altars. And we assume that others did probably sequentially. 
even though by the time Joseph and his, and his family were all in Egypt, probably it was possible, especially once they were in the uh, condition of slavery, that that was no longer practiced by them or maybe even allowed by, by the Egyptians. The Egyptians were not exactly narrow-minded as far as worship was concerned. They were fairly broad-minded, and there were many gods and goddesses and so forth that were worshipped by the Egyptians. But as we know, their condition of servitude eventually led to their being persecuted in many ways. And so we assume by the fact that when Moses finally came down to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, that they had just about forgotten who Yahweh was, that probably sacrifices had long been forgotten in, amongst the Israel nation also. Now the idea behind this bronze altar that we read about goes beyond mere homage, even though that is important. It is important that we grant to God our homage, our dedication. But it goes to the point of including the concept of substitutionary atonement. And this concept of substitutionary atonement is one of the most critical, if not the most critical concept in all of Scripture. We, we sing the song about being bought by the blood of Christ. And there are, of course, as you know, various Protestant denominations today which throw those songs out because they don't want this bloody religion that uh, many uh, evangelicals sing about. But if you read through the scripture, you find blood is a major theme in scripture, in both Old and New Testament. What is meant, of course, by substitutionary atonement, uh, just briefly, is the covering of sin by the blood of a sacrifice. And as we go along further this morning, we'll see that that, that is expanded. An early illustration of this, of course, can be seen in what God provided for Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah. When Abraham took Isaac up there to offer him to God, uh, before Isaac was to be sacrificed, God revealed a ram, and that ram was put in the place of Isaac. It was a substitute for Isaac there on the top of Mount Moriah. And of course, we know that in the, when the children of Israel, the Israelites, left the land of Egypt, part of that departure uh, program was the Passover event. In fact, it was the key event. And the Passover lamb was also a substitutionary lamb. The, the Lord said that when his angel went over the land, when he saw the blood, he would pass over that household. So the blood of that lamb substituted for the lives of the people within that particular house. However, it was in this tabernacle, and then later, of course, in the temple, that the substitutionary atonement became a regular part of Israelite service to God. I'd like to read in the first chapter of the book of Leviticus a couple of verses there. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. God is speaking to Moses from the tabernacle, and he says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. 
he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Now the New Testament makes it very clear to us, I think, that the true basis of atonement, and we're talking about the atonement that is discussed here, that the true basis for this atonement was to be the blood of Christ that would be sacrificed on the cross some 1,400 years later than the events that we're reading about here in Exodus. So the, the blood of the sacrificial animal was simply a substitute for the blood of Christ that would yet be sacrificed. I don't want to make a big point of this now because this will come uh, probably next week. But I, I think it's very important for us to realize that God is not, and, and I know we know this, but sometimes we may not think about it, God is not locked within time and history as we are. There's no way you or I can escape time. It's just there all the time. <laughs> And there's no way to get out from under it. But God is not within that framework. And when the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that tells us that the plan of salvation was launched by God before he ever created the world. It doesn't mean that God, you know, created the world and got things going and dealt with Adam and Eve and then said, uh-oh, something's got to be done. No. And that's to me the most mind-blowing thing of all. Why did God, knowing what Adam and Eve would do, go ahead and create the world in the first place? Well, that's one of the things that I think we'll find out someday when we stand before God and say, why? Why did you go ahead and make the world knowing what was going to happen? If you want to really have kind of a interesting perspective on this from the uh, pen of a uh, well-known author whose name is C.S. Lewis. Read when you get a chance a book called Perlandra. It's kind of, well it is, it's science fiction, but it deals with this whole concept of creating a world in which sin uh, came versus creating a world in which there was no sin. And, and the problems of a sinful being coming into this perfect world. And it it's really stretches your imagination, but it helps you to deal with this whole issue here of why would God make a world knowing ahead of time that man was going to sin and knowing ahead of time that the Son of God was going to have to come and, and become human. The incarnation was going to have to happen. Why do it? From a human perspective, it doesn't seem to be logical. But obviously, our logic does not match God's logic. But the blood of the sacrificed animals here, made on these, this bronze altar and on the earlier altars before the bronze altar, was accepted in anticipation of the propitiatory sacrifice that Christ would make later in history. Now, to us it was later. To God it was already done. And that's why he could do that. Now, the placement of the, of the altar. The altar was placed in a way that reveals its significance in part. 
It was placed in the outer court of the tabernacle. And we haven't really talked about the outer court of the tabernacle. That's coming up. But the tabernacle itself was here. And then out around it was an enclosure, a curtained off enclosure that was about, as I noted on your outline, about a quarter of an acre in size that surrounded the tabernacle itself. Now the altar was outside the tabernacle in front of it. And it was placed directly between the entrance into the tabernacle itself and the entrance into the enclosure. They were both on the east side. East side of the tabernacle, east side of the enclosure were the entrances. And so if you came through the entrance, the entrance curtains into the outer courtyard, the very first thing you saw was the bronze altar sitting there uh, a few yards out from the entrance to the tabernacle. It was the very first thing you saw. That emplacement is very, very important. Because as you come through the curtain, the very first thing you face is the need for atonement. The very first thing you face is the instrument which tells you that you're a sinner, that you need redemption, that a sacrifice has got to be made, that you're not worthy to walk into the presence of the living God without, first of all, being redeemed, without atonement being made for you. I'd like to read from the 24th chapter of Psalms, 24th Psalm. You've certainly read this many times, one of the beautiful Psalms of David, beginning at verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now is David saying there that the only people who can ascend to the hill of the Lord, that is, go up to the tabernacle, because remember in David's day there was no temple yet. There was only the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting, as they called it. Who can stand in his holy place? Is David saying there, the only people who can do that are, are people who have clean hands and a pure heart, that is, you know, perfect people, uh, people who have never uh, lifted their soul to falsehood, who have never sworn deceitfully? They can't be saying that, because David was a deceitful man himself. <laughs> David had, had done things that were despicable, even in the eyes of pagan people. What he is saying here is nobody can do this who hasn't been put in that position by virtue of atonement. And in his day, of course, the substitutionary atonement of the sacrificial animals and the blood that was sacrificed to cover sin, because God said, I will allow that to happen as a down payment for the actual atoning sacrifice that would be made by Christ himself a thousand years after David lived. So David is not saying you've got to be a perfect person to go into the presence of God by virtue of your own perfection. He's saying, in effect, that that perfection comes through God's uh, granting of atonement because of obedience to the sacrificial system. So no one could, when you go in through the, the entrance into the temple tab, tabernacle courtyard, you go into the courtyard there, there was no way you were going to progress any further 
as far as approaching God without having accomplished the sacrifice, without having sin covered by the blood of the atonement. The sacrifice of an animal on that bronze altar was a physical act. You took a real lamb in there, and that real lamb was sacrificed. It's a physical act. You carried that lamb in there, and you presented that lamb to the priest. That physical act was an act of obedience. It was carrying out what God had prescribed needed to be done. And to some extent, it would express a heart attitude of submission, of obedience, of confession. Of course, God only knew the heart because people are perfectly capable, as you well know, of going through the motions without the heart being associated with the motions. But you would probably think that most of them wouldn't, wouldn't want to sacrifice a perfect male animal just to go through the motions. Some probably would because, oh, you know, maybe their place in society would be somehow threatened if they didn't do this. But most, certainly, you would hope, at least, would do it with the heart saying, I'm doing this in response to God's command that this is what is to be done. Now, I think it's very important for us to note that carrying the animal to the priest and saying this animal is given as a sacrifice for my sins and the sins of my family. That is an act of confession. That is confessing to the priest that I need to have that cleansing, that atonement. That's a, that's a confession to the whole community by carrying that animal in there that, yes, I need this too. So it is a confession in and of itself. But within the heart, there needed to be also, of course, a true God-oriented act of confession of sin. Confession, forgiveness does not come without confession. But confession alone is not enough. Confession must be accompanied with the shedding of blood. And that's why they had to do this. They had to carry out these sacrifices. In Hebrews 9.22, we read before, without shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness. So the blood had to be shed for forgiveness to come. But that shedding of blood had to be accompanied by confession. Because if it was just shed with a heart that was closed to God and was saying, I'm just doing this because I've got to do it, but I don't have anything that I need to be forgiven for. I mean, if that was the heart attitude, then there was nothing accomplished by that sacrifice. Because the physical act had to be accompanied by a heart that was oriented to God in submission and confession for it to be a real substitutionary atonement. The one who was seeking forgiveness, as we read in this Leviticus passage, had to identify with the lamb. You couldn't just go out there and say, take that one over there, don't let me see it anymore, and have somebody else take it in. And you had to carry the lamb in. You had to put your hand on the head of the lamb as you slit its throat. Or as the priest, whoever was doing it. Which means you were identifying with this lamb. You're identifying your need of this lamb's death for your sin to be covered. That's not an easy thing to do. 
<laughs> Can you imagine what it would be like uh, today, you know, in our society? It would be up in arms. Animal lovers and all the rest would have a total fit. Uh, laws would be passed. You couldn't do it. And it wasn't meant to be a, a thing that was easily accepted. It wasn't supposed to be easily accepted. It, uh, the whole sacrificial system wasn't based on ease. I mean, it was not easy for God to become a man and to die a death on the cross in utter humiliation. He did it because of his love for us, because of his perfect love. It wasn't supposed to be easy. And of course, as we, as we know, th there were many opportunities when you actually identified with the lamb so much that you had actually had that lamb in your household for several days so that everyone identified with this lamb. So it was a hard thing to sacrifice that lamb. Why was it a hard thing? Because God wanted us to know how serious sin is. If it was just easy to pass off sin and say, well, shoot, God, I sinned, uh, here, here's a nickel. Is that okay? You know, it would be easy for us all. But our salvation was bought with a price far beyond that of, of a billion lambs or of the value of the whole universe. And God wanted the Israelites to know this is a hard thing to kill this lamb, to see it die in its blood, pour forth because you have sinned. And I, I think most Israelites never became case-hardened to that. Oh, I, I realize that in the day when Solomon dedicated the temple and they sacrificed, I don't know, 125,000 animals, it must have gotten pretty, I mean, those involved had to get pretty hardened after a while. You know, it almost became a slaughterhouse. But for most, it, was, it still was a very, very difficult thing. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God tries to, through Moses, explain to the Israelites why they had to do this. He says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So it's not because blood in and of itself has a certain chemical composition that makes God more accepting of this than some other substance. It's because blood equates life. Most of us cannot survive without blood. And it becomes the symbol of life because it is the essence of life. I mean, most of us can do without a lot of things. You know, they can operate and take all kinds of things out of our bodies and we can still function. But if you take all the blood out, we don't function any longer. So God permitted the death of the lamb or the goat or the bullock or the pigeon or whatever it was that was to be sacrificed uh, to substitute for the death of the sinner himself. In other words, that blood covered his sin by virtue of the death that Christ would one day die so that they as the sinner would not have to die as penalty for their own sin. Spiritual death I'm talking about, not physical death, obviously. Uh, we all have to go through the physical death, that is, unless God comes back before that's necessary for us. But uh, 
The second death is, of course, what is always referred to relative to that. Now, by following the prescribed plan for atonement that's given here in the Pentateuch, the Israelite exercised faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So faith has to play a role here, even for the Israelite. The Israelite had to believe that obeying God and taking this lamb there and sacrificing this lamb and offering, in it, offering it to God, he had to believe that God accepted that. And that there, therefore God imputed righteousness to him because of his faith. Abraham believed God and God imputed it to him as righteousness. Noah believed God, and God imputed it to him as righteousness. These Israelites believed God and did what they were asked to do here by God, and God imputed it to them as righteousness. And they could go back to their tent knowing that their sins have been forgiven, if their heart, of course, was right before God, if they truly were confessing their sin and believing that God was respecting their sacrifice. <clears throat> we won't turn to uh, this verse in Leviticus chapter 4, but we read this. The priest shall offer them, the sacrifices, up in smoke on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Leviticus 4.35. And he shall be forgiven. So by doing this with the right heart attitude, forgiveness was granted. That's how God responded to the faithful Israelite. Sincere repentance, coupled with obedience to the word of God, produces the cleansing of sin through the grace of God. The Old Testament Hebrews were to maintain their relationship with God through these regular sacrifices. Um, sacrifices were made, made all year long at various times for various things. As New Testament Christians, however, we don't do that. We maintain our fellowship by God, with God by, of course, repentance, confession, and faith, but not in a sacrifice that we are giving but in a sacrifice that Christ has already made for us. No additional sacrifices are needed. That means you don't have to go and uh, give the church a certain amount of money. It's not going to buy anything from God. And, and that's, of course, what tore the church apart and, and helped to stimulate the Reformation. The whole idea of going in there and paying money for an indulgence that somehow I can give money and that's going to influence God to do something for me or for somebody else out there in the world of those who have passed out of this life. That is so unbiblical. And that's why Luther nailed up the 95 Theses to the church door there. Because he said, this is not scriptural. Now, he had no intention of creating a new church. He just wanted to debate what he felt was an abuse of the church of that particular day. And, and, and it's so clear from Scripture that, as the song says, we trust and we obey. There is no other way. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. We can't, you know, in any way achieve 
righteousness except by trusting and obeying. Now, there are two major differences, and, and certainly others you could probably think of, between the Old Testament and New Testament concept here, <clears throat> or application. First, we've read this passage in Hebrews before, I think even last week, so we won't go back to it again. But in Hebrews chapter 10, we read that every priest, now he's talking about this tabernacle and, and temple sacrifice, sacrificial system. Every priest stands daily offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now what the Hebrew writer is saying here is that the sacrifice of the animal did not in and of itself take away sin. It was merely symbolic of the blood of Christ which would actually take away sin. By our faith, our sin, uh, by our faith in the death of Christ, our sin has been removed, not just covered. It's been removed. That's why we use the term justification. We, we have been cleansed. We have been pardoned. You know, when the governor of a state pardons a criminal, he is not just saying to that criminal, you're a dirty guy, but I'm going to let you go. That's commutation. Pardon is when you're saying you're not a dirty guy and you don't belong here. You're not even guilty of what you were accused of. Therefore, go free. That's what God does for us. He gives us a pardon. So our sin isn't just covered, it's removed. We're cleansed of that sin. And we are no longer sinners in the sense that we stand guilty before God. Because as we read in Scripture, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We do not stand with the sentence of death before us because we have been cleansed of sin and are not worthy of that death because of the blood of Christ, which has cleansed us. So the blood of these animals couldn't take away sin. It was simply a substitute for the true cleansing blood of Christ. And God allowed it to count in the sense of creating a fellowship with those believers and not counting their sin against them. Once Christ had died, though, there was no longer any value in the sacrifice. That's why we don't make any sacrifices. There would be no value in it. If I were to go out and slay a lamb and hope that God would cleanse me for, for slaying this lamb, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm out of sync with truth. There's no point in it because the true sacrifice that all of those were leading up to has been made. Therefore, the rest of them are meaningless today. And although the Jews are hoping one day that they'll be able to reestablish the temple and reestablish the sacrificial system, and that may happen, but it isn't going to do them one way to good. And then secondly, another reason that there's a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament uh, understanding of this is, as we have noted, as we noted last week, we are now individually and corporately temples of the Holy Spirit. We, we don't go to a tabernacle in which God dwells or in which God places his name. He is actually in us. He's placed his name in here, in you, 
in us as a group, in us individually. He's placed our, his name there. We are walking temples of God. You know, if we could just keep that concept before us all the time, it might help us to act a little better <laughs> sometimes. Of course, it might also cause us to think, well, if God is living in here, then maybe I can zap that guy, you know? <laughs> As Jesus said to James and John, you guys are th sons of thunder. But sometimes it's, it's kind of hard not to associate with them <laughs> in our thinking. Kind of like Elijah sitting on the mountain and saying, if God is in me and not in you, fricassee you. And so God did. But vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And uh, we need to remember that. It is the Spirit of God who indwells us, who convicts us of sin. So we don't need all these externals to do it. We don't need this, this bronze altar standing in front of us to remind us, oh no, I'm a sinner and I need to make a sacrifice for my sin. The Spirit of God's in there all the time saying, you blew it again, buddy. Your attitude is wrong here. Uh, whatever it may be, he, he is there. And the external reminders are no longer necessary. Well, let's look a little bit at this altar. The scripture gives us some description of its, its uh, physical detail. It, it's a relatively simple structure. Using, again, the cubit in its minimum length. That is, it could have been a little larger. But using the 18-inch cubit, which is considered to be fairly standard, tip, tip of the elbow, tip of the finger length here, and if it's 18 inches for us today, it probably would have been smaller for the Hebrews. <laughs> so maybe that's not so conservative. But most consider that to be uh, conservative as a foot and a half. We're looking at a box that's seven and a half feet on each side. So it's seven and a half feet that way, seven and a half feet that way, seven and a half feet there. So it's a square, seven and a half feet on each side. The scripture also tells us that it's um, three cubits tall, which would be about four and a half feet. So it would be, oh, yay tall off the ground. And then on its four corners were these horns. And it's really always been difficult to interpret this word, but usually it's shown as kind of a metal piece sticking up horn shape on, on each of the four corners of the altar. Now the scripture tells us that this box was to be constructed of acacia wood. <coughs> Seems a little unlikely that you're going to make a thing in which you're going to be sacrificing animals by fire out of acacia wood, but of course it was totally sheeted in bronze. Bronze sheeting on every uh, side and every corner of this, of this altar. And probably it was relatively thick bronze uh, to, to be able to take the heat without the wood inside uh, becoming uh, baked. We're told that it had two rings on each of two sides, down about midway, about the level of the grating. There were rings on, on each of two sides, and, and these rings stuck out so that a pole could be passed through the rings. And, and the pole would be passed on this side, and a pole would be passed on this side, so that the bronze altar could be lifted up onto the shoulders of the Levites and then could be transported, because this whole thing had to be portable. I mean, the Israelites, uh, particularly at this stage of life, were a nomadic, and so everything had to be movable. And so this bronze altar was built in a way that it could be lifted onto the shoulders of the, of the Levites and they could take off and transport it out across the plain. Now it's interesting that these features almost all have rings to be transported like that. The ark does, the altar does, and so forth. The idea, of course, was that you don't just pack this thing on some 
cart someplace and tuck it all away and then drag it across the landscape with some oxen or something. These were to be carefully carried over the landscape by the people who were responsible for that as their job. The Levites' job was to carry out the ministry relative to the tabernacle, of which some of them were the actual priests who did the sacrificial part, and then one was the high priest who actually was able to go inside to the Holy of Holies one time a year. And so this was their job, and this was their, their place in Israelite society. Now, the scripture tells us that inside the box, approximately halfway from its top to its bottom, was to be placed a bronze grating. And that bronze grating was very important because that's where the sacrificial animal would be placed because otherwise, this altar is a hollow box. It's open at the top, it's open at the bottom. And so this grating was where the animal would be placed. And then the fire which would be built on the ground underneath would then burn up through the grating and would burn the sacrifice that was placed on this grating. Scripture talks about the various tools, the fire pans and the shovels and so forth. All of these were made out of bronze so that they would be very useful implements in operating the altar. Now this bronze altar was to be a very, very busy implement. It wasn't like the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, which would be part of the actual ceremony only one time a year. That bronze altar out there would be used continuously for sacrifices which would be made by the individual for himself and his family and corporately for the nation by the priests. And, and these sacrifices would be made almost not around the clock, but you know, using up much of the day, most of the week, these sacrifices would be made. And if you want to read about these sacrifices, go to the first few chapters of the book of Leviticus, <clears throat> particularly the first five chapters, and it will tell you about the many sacrifices that were to be made, which were to be burned on this bronze altar. I mean, we're talking about uh, sacrifices of calves, of goats, <clears throat> of lambs, of turtle doves, of pigeons, of grain, of incense, all this stuff which would be sacrificed here as part of the many different offerings that would be made. It was not a thing where the priest would come up and, and, and make one sacrifice as kind of a catch-all sacrifice for the whole nation. It was a sacrifice, a series of sacrifices that were, was to be made. Specific sins, thanksgiving offerings, uh, first fruit offerings, consecration offerings, and many others are listed, particularly in those first five chapters of uh, Leviticus. This, of course, was purposeful. It wasn't that God was into decimating the herds. It wasn't that God loved barbecues. God didn't love any of it. It was because the individual and the nation needed to be constantly aware of their relationship to God. And the constant system of sacrifices kept them aware of the fact that they needed to be in a right standing before their God. And this is such a critical concept. It's a critical concept. 
we need to be daily aware of the fact that we need to be in a right relationship with our God. Now, if we have been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are basically in a right relationship with God. But we can mess up that relationship, not in the sense of being thrown off to hell again, because there is no condemnation, but we can mess up that fellowship by our disobedience and by our sin. We can sever that communication line, as it were. We can grieve the Holy Spirit of the living God who dwells within us. And, and once we have grieved the Spirit of God, it's important for us to confess that sin to Him so that our fellowship with Him will be restored. And it's not because God goes around, the Spirit of God goes around, you know, moping because we have grieved Him. It's because He knows that unless we confess our sin and get ourselves right with Him, there isn't any way He's going to work through us because that wouldn't be for our good if if he did. Because then we'd have this flippant idea about life that doesn't matter what we do. I mean, I've been once saved, always saved, and so forth. I can just live like hell if I want to, and it's okay. Now, there are people who think that. There are people who think that, well, you know, it's just my character. I'm just more lustful than the average person, or I'm just more angry than the average person, or I'm just more this, I'm just more that. And therefore, it becomes an excuse. I'm just a good Christian. I may not live like it. You know, I may have a girl in seven ports who are all suing me for non-support, as the old song went. But I'm a Christian. Well, God just doesn't work through such people. God wants us to be right with Him, in fellowship with Him, and then He works through us, because otherwise He's going to confirm us in our sin. If I go around flippantly living however I want, and He goes ahead and does good things through me anyway, you know, what kind of a deal is that? It's kind of like... You know, your kid does bad things, but you go ahead and give him candy and everything he wants to do anyway, and you never, you never discipline him. Well, the Lord doesn't do that. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So if you feel like you're being disciplined, it's because he loves you. <laughs> That's what we tell our children, too. <laughs> they don't always believe us. And I don't think we always believe God, either. But, but that, is, that is the truth. But there's one other very practical thing why these uh, sacrifices were often made. And I think you know what that was, right? <laughs> That's how the priest got fed, you know? Part of the sacrifice was given to the priest and his family. And that's why they brought grain offerings as well as meat offerings and drink offerings. All of these things were brought so that the priest would be fed. Now, when the priest was not on duty, he was back home living in his village, and they were raising their own crops and raising their own animals and providing for themselves. But when he was on duty, he was to be supported through the sacrifices of the people. And a portion of the sacrifice would be given to the priests to feed them. And, and so there's a very practical aspect about this. And that's one of the things about God we can always trust in. He isn't just pie in the sky by and by God. He's a practical God. He cares about our daily needs. He cares about our, our, our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs. And he cared about these priests who were serving him. He wanted them adequately provided for. And so this whole system was built up to keep the Israelites' eyes on the living God and their relationship to him and to provide for those who were part of that whole system and all of it was looking forward to the once and for all death of Christ 
whereby the Spirit of God would live, indwell the believer, and we would maintain that relationship because of his internal witness. We don't need to face the bronze altar to be reminded, uh-oh, I'm a sinner and I better take care of that. We've got the Spirit of God saying, inside us all the time, saying, these are areas you need to take care of. And of course, he does it through the word. Tim? What do the Jews after the, what do they do for the atonement of sin today? Yeah, they don't have a sacrificial system. It's, it's all, of course, as you probably know, during the days, the, the Temple of Solomon was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar probably in the 586-587 uh, invasion and destruction of Jerusalem. The Israelites were carried off into captivity, and in captivity, they began to develop the synagogue system of religious worship. And in the synagogue system, they had to learn to believe in God and put everything in the future. In other words, they, they tr they're, they're committed to prayer, and, and that's not bad. They're committed to prayer and to believing the word and trying to live in, according to the in accordance to the word as best as possible and look forward to the fact that the Messiah is coming, sacrifices will be reinstituted, and all of that will be right. But in the meantime, God understands the whole thing and therefore he'll take care of us. It's a, it's a matter of faith. But that's why the Israelites today, or the Hebrews, the Jews today, some of them anyway, are really looking forward to being able to reinstitute that sacrificial system. They want to get the tabernacle, re I mean the temple, rebuilt. It's going to be a real problem. But that's what they want to do. Does it say how many people had to carry all this stuff? How many people carried the ark? How many people carried the... I mean, with this pole that was so long, was it six or eight or... Well, in the case of the Ark of the Covenant, it would only take four people, one in each corner. Mm -hmm. In the case of the bronze altar, I don't know, some of you engineers could probably figure out what would be the, the weight of, a, of something that's seven foot, the half by seven and a half by four and a half that's made out of wood and sheeted in bronze. I don't know what that would weigh, but probably uh, you could put at least two or, or maybe more on each pole. No, it doesn't say how many had to carry it. But we do know there were a lot of Levites. Later on when the Levites are actually numbered, there's like 22,000 males. Well, that's enough to take down the tabernacle and, and to carry these things and to take down all the curtain enclosure and, and all the pull. I mean, plenty of manpower to do that and carry it. Well, next week, uh, we'll pick up with verse 9 and we'll look at the court of the tabernacle, the, outer, the, the quarter acre around the tabernacle, which was sealed off. Alan? Were there openings on the side of it to put the wood in and take the ashes out? Oh, the, uh, you're talking about the altar? Well, it would, be, it would be, there's no, it doesn't say there were any openings. So we can either assume that or we assume that it was not set flush on the ground. That was put up so that it could be inserted from underneath, which is probably what happened. They probably set it on rocks or bricks or something so that it could be fed from underneath. Yeah, obviously that had to happen. You had to be able to get air underneath too. Not, of course, the air could come down through the grating above, but putting the wood would be difficult to do. Yes. But there's no statement that there are any openings in it in Scripture. 